This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to journalist Michael Colborn and he's going to be speaking to us about the rise of Ukraine's far-right militia known as the Azov Battalion. Azov began as a small-time fighting force of volunteers when the war kicked off in the east and they're now trusted by the government and even have their own column of tanks. Many people in Azov are openly far-right and some are even neo-Nazis. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. For anyone that doesn't know, who's never heard of them, whatever, like who are the Azov Battalion? What is it? You know, or maybe just go into that first of all, if you can. Azov is, it's commonly, it, it's, referred to quite commonly like as the Azov Battalion, which is what it originally was. But uh, as of the, the regiment, the, it started up in 2014. It was uh, in the wake of the start of the war in Ukraine, the Russian, Russian-backed aggression in eastern Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine's armed forces were in absolute tatters. And to deal with the the invasion, the all of a sudden war that was on their territory. Uh, Ukraine's armed forces relied on volunteers and people essentially forming their, they were with organizing with, with, with state, uh, state support, state backing, uh, forming their own battalions or, or militias to fight in in eastern Ukraine, on the fi- side of Ukraine, and one of these battalions that started up uh, was called the Azov Battalion. Uh, it's it started ba- basically the without going into too much detail, the genesis of it uh, came from uh, far right activists from uh, a group that was called Patriot of Ukraine, uh, also involved uh, far right football hooligans and other people from. Ukraine's uh, far-right subcultures, and they formed, you know, long story short, formed a battalion to fight in the east, took part in a number of battles, uh, including the liberation of the city of Mariupol on the Sea of Azov, and that's partly why the, the, they, they took the name Azov as, as theirs. And from there, into 2014-15, or late in 2014, the battalion was formally uh, brought under the control of Ukraine's National Guard and thus turned into a regiment, called a regiment. Uh, And from there, in 2014-2015, what was the Azov Battalion or Azov Regiment expanded into a more full-fledged far-right social movement. They formed something called the Azov Civil Corps, which ended up becoming the National Corps Political Party uh, and all sorts of other subgroups and sub-initiatives to, by, by, by now, by 2021, to become this sort of all-encompassing, one-stop shop far-right movement that has uh, not just a dominant positions on not just a dominant position on Ukraine's far right, but is the 
preeminent far-right group in, in the country. So basically what, what's happened over six years is a relatively ragtag bunch of far-right guys forming, forming a battalion to, to fight in the east of the country slowly uh, became a larger scale far-right movement that encompasses all, all sorts of different things. Right. Well, I think that's um, something we should really kind of expand on now. Like, you know, I, I've filmed with Azov um, yeah. and, you know, they give you the spiel. No, we're not, we're not Nazis, man. We're not yeah. Nazis. Yeah. When did, when did you film with them? So I, well, man, when was it? It was... Because uh, I think it was honestly before I ever uh, really started paying much attention. I mean, that's another thing that, that I can talk, talk about is... Or, or, or mention is that my focus on Azov really started in only in 2018 um, because I it was a bit of an accident. I, I, I mean, obviously, I spend a lot of time in Ukraine covering and, and writing about the country. And after everything that happened in 2018 with Ukraine's far right, for those for those who don't know, there were about half a dozen pogroms of, of Roma camps instigated by the far right and it made international news and it really turned more people's eyes to Ukraine in terms of asking, okay, what really is going on with the far right in the country? Is it really a figment of Kremlin propaganda? And so I decided in 2018, in late 2018, that I was going to write a kind, just a fairly simple, straightforward article uh, Kind of looking into looking into the far right and separating myth from reality, but uh, very quickly I realized that there was so much there that had not properly been looked at or analyzed or or really discussed. One article for me turned into two, then it turned into more and more and more and. And then it became, here we are in early 2021, you're talking to me about Azov. Well, yeah, man. I mean, I've read your stuff and it was like, I think you're one of the few people that's understood what's going on with them because I, I kind of had my eye on them from about 2015, just seeing them as like, a, you know, a small kind of far right, you know, fascist friendly kind of, you know, militant-ish group. And then, you know, it, but at the time, like right sector was bigger. The more people were talking about, were talking about right. 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 And, and, but then they were like, you know, I spoke to some right sector people and I met some people on the front line that were right sector. And certainly it was true that there were definitely like actual neo-Nazis within in their ranks. But then there was also people that were like Muslim and then there was like anarchist. It kind of became like, if you want to fight, you fight with right sector and no one really asks what your affiliation is. But then when I found, you know, that as of, it was like, no, they're all far right. And then I end up making a film with them in 2017. Um, I filmed at what was basically like, you know, the Azov child summer camp. And it was it was kind of like a child soldier summer camp, to be honest. And, you know, they, they said, no, we're not Nazi. Of course we're not. And then you get there and, you know, I spent a week literally around them every single day. And very slowly, the, the Nazis, you know, tattoos started to slip, you know, underneath the T-shirts. And we realized that half of them had SS tattoos. They had swastikas. There was one guy that was teaching the kids abseiling that literally had um, the SS death skull on his neck, you know. And then we found out from, you know, I found some of their social media and they all, one of them even had a fucking swastika pendant. What, what you say is, I mean, this, this is something that 
I mean, another thing to mention is uh, this, I'm writing a book about the Azov movement. Uh, it should be out uh, later this year. I'm under contract for it right now. I've still got a fair bit of work to do on it, so I don't have a title or a cover or anything really fancy to promote about it right now, other than to say I'm writing one. And one of the key things that I want to explore and, and am exploring is this nature of, I guess, what you'd scholarly refer to as doublespeak with Azov's rhetoric. Now, all, I mean, you've, you've covered and, and done research and filmed with other far-right people in different countries. Uh, we all know, anybody who even has a pretty base, baseline knowledge of, of far-right people knows how their, their rhetoric works, that they will say one thing and very quickly if you can if you if you look past the words that they're that they're saying if you look past what they're trying to sell you it's it becomes very very obvious that they are exactly what they're trying to convince you they're not so you like you talk about your experience uh in in 2017 it was like at at that camp and these guys telling you that they're they're not Nazis, they're not Nazi sympathizers, they're not neo-fascists, whatever. And then all of a sudden these little signs coming out and then not so little signs and then very big signs coming out. I mean, I had, I think I had that same experience in, in late 2018 when I first uh, interviewed people related to Azov and there and you know, without going into too much detail right now, like, I mean, I, went to their Cossack house, Kozatsky Dum, which off just, it's a kind of a three-center, three-story social center uh, of the Azov movement just uh, just off Maidan Nezalesnosti in, in Kiev, on, just off Independence Square, so literally right in the center of the city. And talking to individuals there, I was being sold this story that uh, they're not like neo-nazis or far-right they're quote-unquote new nationalists they're not they're not uh, anti-semitic they're not extremists and they're telling me this while i'm sitting in in the th up on the third floor of cossack house in the the literature club and they got pictures of cornelio codrianu on the walls you know with somebody who is a ridiculous anti-semite from 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 Romania, like I mean, somebody who was so maniacally fascist that even Hitler was, and even the Nazis, I think he he died in 1938, Kudrian. But I mean, somebody who was just a openly fascist fascist extremist ideologue. So you you get these people, and they still do it to this day, trying to convince people, people in Ukraine, but especially people in the West, that. There's nothing extreme about them, but it literally takes one click onto their social media pages, onto their Telegram channels, onto their Telegram chats, which are, you know, not these, I mean, I, I like to pretend that I'm monitoring some, you know, like super top secret chats that I somehow managed to worm my way into and infiltrate, but I mean, they're, they're talking about openly neo-Nazi anti-Semitic things in, in, in public chats. So it, it has never been that hard to 
look past the rhetoric of what they what they've long tried to sell the West on, and see that they're they're fundamentally fascist to the core. Yeah, and with that in mind, I think we should maybe you know give listeners a bigger idea of the context. Now, this is no longer like a small group of fascist militants. They have APCs. I think they have a whole column of tanks. They're now a part of the government. Like maybe just explain that, like you know, the rise of Azov. Yeah. Well, what Azov consciously tried to do in you know the earlier stages of the war. And even after the first, uh, well, with the Minsk uh, agreements in like 2014 and then Minsk II in 2015, uh, they, as of, I think, consciously adopted a strategy of worming its way into the mainstream. Now, one way that they were able to do that was by having the regiment uh, become part of the National Guard of Ukraine. Now, part of that, it's argued, is, you know, was a way of being you know, effectively supervised by, by government or, you know, at least under the control of government. But by putting the regiment in uh, as part of the National Guard, it, it, it's given them, it gave them then and it gives them now this level of, of legitimacy. So what, what the Azov movement turned into is a movement, of, I mean, it's hard to estimate numbers of, of, of members or supporters, but most estimates are like 10,000 people. And, and what they've managed to do is build this so, sort of all-inclusive far-right infrastructure with their own literature club, publishing house, um, social center, uh, far-right far fight club tournaments, all in Basically, and even in some smaller cities and towns across Ukraine, uh, uh, there's if, if you're say a, a a teenager, especially a young man, there's no outlet for you that's cooler than than Azov. There's there's no there, there's there's nothing. Yeah, like if, yeah, and I think that's that's part of the issue that I think has not been by myself or anybody, it's a bit more difficult to explore and that hasn't been explored yet. The, the idea that with this with this kind of infrastructure, especially something geared towards kids and, and young men, like you if if you want to be if you want to be cool, then who the hell else are you going to go hang out with in one of these cities or towns? Yeah, that's a really good point. And something I noticed when I was filming with the kids, like, you know, we would film with uh, the idea that everyone that joined Azov joined because they're like a Nazi that wants to kill Jews. That's just not true. Like there were kids and you'd say like, oh, you know, these guys are like far right. And they'd be like, yeah, we, we heard that. We were a bit worried, but Azov's cool. And I mean, honestly, if you look at them without all the, you know, the horrible Nazi shit, they are cool. They do look cool. Yeah, that's one point. I mean, you see it, especially in Kiev. Like the guy, I mean, you can clearly, clearly pick out who like the the as of kids are or you know at least not just teenagers but young men in their maybe late teens early 20s their their subculture i mean the most visible subculture of as of i mean they're they're the coolest kids around i mean especially if you're a young a young man a young guy in ukraine trying to like any guy anywhere trying to trying to trying to figure the world out and you see these these 
<laughs> well, honestly, these jack dudes, these guys look like they're working out all the time. They're fighting and training all the time. They're all tattooed to high heavens. I mean, a lot of people in Ukraine have tattoos, even maybe more so, in my opinion, than some places in the West. But it, the way that even they, they, they dress, the places they hang out, I mean, yeah, if you, and I've, that's something I want to explore in more detail as well, is this why why kids why young men would join a movement like this is because it's for better i mean better it's not a better way to phrase it because sometimes they look at it and it's like this is fucking cool right right and people are scared to admit that because they think yeah. that then you're like green lighting it's like no that's why it's so fucking dangerous and i mean that's why some i mean i've written about uh far-right combat sports and MMA, not just in Ukraine, but in other countries as well. And that's part of the appeal with that as well, like the appeal of somebody like, uh, like goes by Nikitin, Denis Nikitin or Kapustin, the Russian neo-Nazi who's based in Ukraine now and has his, uh, his White Rex uh, neo-Nazi fashion brand. Like, you, you look, at, look at the image, you look at the image or you look at the kind of things that they, the dudes modeling that sort of thing, the way that, the lifestyle that, he he and people like him present and talk about it really it's it's appealing to young men and they know that and i know that and you know that i think we all have to realize that they're they're getting kids and especially young men into these kinds of movements by giving them something they want and i think we have to i mean it's giving them something they want in terms of aesthetics in terms of camaraderie in terms of an outlet it isn't just, it isn't necessarily because, like like you said, with your experience at, at the youth camp, it's not like all, any any and every kid going to one of these camps or going to some ASA-related event is some hardcore neo-Nazi who buys into everything. But a lot of those kinds of kids who go to something like that, uh, they can, it's a pathway to getting further involved in the far right and a pathway into radicalization. Yeah, definitely. Um Let's talk a little bit about the leader, right? Beletsky, the guy that started it all. Tell us about him. Andrei Beletsky has a, a long, long history on Ukraine's far right. He's from Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine. And he was the head of an organization called uh, Patriot of Ukraine. And what that far right or outright neo-Nazi organization did was it was a small, violent neo-Nazi group in, in Kharkiv. It would do things like bust up uh, marketplaces of, of immigrants. But one thing that it would do, uh, it, would, it, will, it would act under the auspices of the regional governor at the time, or the mayor. I mean, I'm probably getting, I'm getting it mixed up, but the, the power broker in Kharkiv, who was Arsene Avakov. Now, Arsene Avakov is now the interior minister of Ukraine, and he's been the interior minister, minister of Ukraine since 2014, since the entire post-Maidan history of Ukraine has been with Arsene Avakov as the interior minister of the country. And anyways, with, with Beletsky, uh, he was long involved in, in, in these far right, violent far-right activities, outright neo-Nazi activities, and he was put in prison on, well, Pending pending trial, he was he hadn't uh, he was charged with uh, attempted murder, and for several years was held held in prison, uh, awaiting trial. And he was eventually released in 2014 under 
once uh, the the revolution had had finished and Yanukovych had fled, uh, there was amnesty given to several uh, a number of prisoners, and one of them was Andrei Beletsky. And because a lot of Patriot of Ukraine members had been active on on Maidan, acting at least the way that they frame it, acting as a vanguard of the revolution, uh, Beletsky kind of immediately swooped in and took control of the the organization. Well, retook control of the organization and became very quickly the undisputed leader of that movement and the and the first commander of of what would become the Azov Battalion and then and then the regiment. So I mean he's somebody who is the un, he's the undisputed king of of Azov. It's 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 his movement. Nobody is about to seriously topple him or challenge his authority. And he's somebody who well, to, again, to put it put it impolitely, is somebody that most people are not going to fuck with in Ukraine. And how did they go then? From you know, they 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 started off fighting uh, on the Maidan. Like you know, they I've seen footage of it. They were an effective force fighting against um, the you know the the Burkut police force. So they did okay with that. But then they became this militia, right? They ended up in the east. How did that happen? How do they get their weapons? How do they form to go and do that? Uh, they got authorization to effectively authority to to go to to form form a militia. They got, I, I believe, some weapons that had already been circulating in Ukraine. I mean, during over the course of the revolution, a number of weapons, you know, had you know, gone missing when when uh, like police stations and things were overrun. But it was from the start. It was something that was being done with the approval and the support of the of the authorities at the time. It was. It may have. They they certainly acted quasi independently, but they were they were never doing so in open defiance or anything of the authorities. Right, but it was. I mean, at the time, everyone was going out there, right? It was there was several different militias. Yeah, exactly, and and it was not it was not a context or a situation where anybody in Ukraine was going to say no, don't don't go don't go out there and fight, because, like I said earlier, and and I think anybody who's familiar with the with what things were like at the time knows. I mean, the army, the armed forces of Ukraine were in absolute tatters. They were in no barely any position to to deal with what was obviously, you know, a well-funded and well-oiled Russian-backed effort. Yeah. Um, and I, there's a lot of uh, kind of myth around the fighting ability of Azov. Yeah. Now, you know, they did they did partake in some very heavy battles and they certainly made a difference. But there's also this, this kind of bullshit, frankly, that, oh, they're one of the best fighting forces on the front. That was that's from my research. That didn't seem true. I mean, what do you what do you think? That's I. That's my understanding and my impression as well. Uh, so much of what I see with with Azov going going through the years and and up to now is this framing of themselves and this this myth this mythology of themselves as the best fighting force in Ukraine. That this the way that they. If you 
listen to what they say, if you read how they talk about themselves, they, they make it seem like they alone liberated Mariupol. They, they, they effectively frame it in a way that without us, you, Ukraine would have been overrun by Russian forces or Russian-backed forces, and I, that, that's just not the reality of it. They, they, they did, you know, sure, they, they, they fought in a number of battles and took casualties, and certainly had a lot of, a lot of members very willing and, and able to fight and were, were frankly good at fighting a war. But the mythology that they, I mean, they really have built this myth around themselves as the vanguard of Ukraine, period, as the best fighting force in Ukraine, and fundamentally, even outside the, the regiment itself into the entire movement, presenting themselves as the, like capital T, the force that defends Ukraine from its enemies. And that, that's just not the case. It just, it just fundamentally isn't. The, the, and I don't think they have been pushed back on far enough or at all in the way that they build up these myths for themselves as, as like I said, as, as the, these self-written myths as themselves as the, you know, the vanguard of the revolution. They are just like, just like a number of, of forces, relatively ragtag forces that fought in the East at the time. They, you know, they, they went, they fought. And to this day, uh, you, you see it in their, in their communications all the time, playing up their, especially individual members, playing up their status as veterans, proclaiming themselves as like the representative of, of all veterans of the war in Ukraine. And un understandably so, Ukrainians are sympathetic to veterans of the war. I mean, I, I, it's kind of, it would be kind of hard to sit here and criticize a Ukrainian for having some sympathy for any veteran of a still ongoing war. But Azov has been able to this day to take advantage of that to the point where if you look at the movement now, uh, there, there are so many people and members and individuals within the movement who they never fought in Eastern Ukraine. They've never been in a war. And those, those who did fight, those who are veterans, they haven't fought for, for years. So the way that I always have thought of it is, and the, the kind of the rhetorical question that I would ask people in Ukraine is, yes, these guys are veterans, not all of them, and a minority of them are veterans that are active in the movement now. How long do these guys get a, like a, how long do they get a free pass for being veterans? Because they exploit this veteran status, real or actual myth or reality. They exploit this veteran status to insulate themselves from criticism and to do what they want in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's when I've been in the East, um, there's obviously, of course, anyone that fights out there, it's like, yeah, fair play. That's good. And you will speak to locals and they're not like, oh, we love the Nazi battalion. They're like, well, you know, who gives a fuck? Like they're fighting. <laughs> what do you want us to do? Say, sorry, your politics doesn't line up. Can you leave now? Like, of course they're not going to do that, you know? Yeah. And I think the con like the contemporary discourse in ukraine is still 
in some ways in the mindset of 2014, 2015, 16, well, especially 2014, 15. I mean, it would, it, it would be really hard looking back at 2014 as some, I mean, I'm obviously I think it's clear from anybody who reads my work. Uh, I, I, I don't approve of neo-Nazis and neo-fascists or any, any, anybody like that. No, 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 do we at Popular Front, we fucking actively hate them. <laughs> you know, like yeah, I fucking don't hate worry. them. Don't worry. <laughs> but it's, you know what I mean? It's at the same time, there's a difference between, oh, we fucking hate them. And it's like, well, if someone's on the front line and their house is getting bombed, you kind of take the help where you get it. You know what I mean? That is reality versus the internet. Like the reality of 2014, like as, would it be right for me to look back on 2014 and say, oh, you, should, you shouldn't have let these guys fight because they're, they're Nazis? Like that's, that's a bit of, that's a, it's a kind of a hard thing to point my finger at people in the past and be like, no, 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 you know, that no, that you know, we need you. You know, Ukraine needs all the soldiers it can get in in eastern Ukraine. Should we make sure they don't have SS tattoos before they uh, before they head out there? Well, I mean, given the reality of the situation at the time in 2014, as you know, non as not a Nazi fan as I am, it's kind of hard to to be able to say something like that. But then we fast forward five, six years later, where, of course, the war is still going on. But, I mean, it's calmed down or an almost frozen war with a, a you know, technically a ceasefire, but a, an almost ceasefire, a ceasefire that's still constantly violated and has still, you know, casualties. The idea that because of what happened in 20, like, like I said before, the idea that because they were needed in some way to fight in 2014 and into 2015. Why, why do we have to give them status and a free pass now, especially given that so many of the people active in this movement are not veterans. They haven't gone to fight because they were they were too young at the time given why why are they able still in 2021 to act act in a certain way in ukraine and do for the most part do what they want in ukraine without really fear of repercussions or reprisals yeah well that's the issue right they got um legitimized by the state um, tell us how that happened because originally they were kind of funded by various people and now they're they've been absorbed into the National Guard and I think they've got something else now like how would, how did that all happen uh, the the details of how that happened you know we'll dig into the details of, of that right now but essentially uh, what happened is that the battalion the Azov battalion uh, in I believe it was November 2014 uh, officially became part of the National Guard of Ukraine and thus became the Azov Regiment. And so what Azov has long been able to take advantage of is, and particularly, it's, the, like I was saying before with uh, Andrei Beletsky, the, the, the leadership of Azov is, for the most part, directly descended from that Patriot of Ukraine group, from that Kharkiv Corps, who had this relationship with Arsene Avakov. Once Avakov became the interior minister, they, it might be a stretch to say they had a sponsor, but they had somebody who 
was willing to insulate them, who was willing to take their side, and who was willing to to let them to let them grow under under his kreisha, under under his roof, basically. So, as as opposed to say right sector, who who early on took a very adversarial began a very adversarial relationship with the government at the time, Azov opted to work with the government, work with state structures and work its way into state structures. And that's why we're sitting here in 2021 talking about the Azov movement and barely anybody talks about it or remembers right sector. Yeah, yeah. I remember like right sector being like, fuck the government, fuck Russia, fuck everyone. You know what I mean? Whereas like you said, Azov was like, okay. Yeah. And, and look, and, and Azov, well, to be frank, I think Azov was the leader. They were smarter about it. And yeah, I think, I think that's, that's key. For a while, there was a guy funding them. I don't know the situation now, and I've forgotten his name. You might remember, but there was a guy that was funding them who was allegedly Jewish. Now, this is where it gets very weird. This is, and this is also another fun thing, trying to really understand Azov is separating myth from reality or trying to understand what's true and what's not when the information out there is murky now. Uh, the what you're, I think the the fellow that you're talking about is Ihor Kolomoisky, yes, who is from uh, Dnipro, and yeah, I, this is something I've I, I haven't looked into a ton in detail, but you know, allegations or charges that Kolomoisky helped in some way fund Azov from the earliest stages. Now that's something Azov has. I've seen their their international secretary. I've seen her deny it in in some interview, uh, and I'm not sure. Like a lot of things with Azov, I'm not sure the extent to which that's true. But what is definitely true is that allegation of being of getting money from uh, a, a a Jewish Ukrainian oligarch. It's something that definitely damaged their standing early on with the international far right to the point where, you know, they're go- they're having to go around or tell other foreign far right people they want to be friendly with to to basically say no, no, we didn't get funding from any 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 Jewish oligarch. What are you talking about? So the extent to which that's true or not is like a lot of things in Ukraine, especially when it comes to talking about money and funding. It's it's very murky and it's it's hard to say for sure. But what is like I said, what's definitely true is that allegation of being funded partly by Kolomoisky has has long been out there and they've long been aware of it and they've long tried to battle against it. Well, I, I don't know who was funding them or what, but I, I tell you one thing that I saw, right? So twenty seventeen you know, we got friendly with them and they trusted enough to, I mean, you know, it's my job, I got to film them, but, you know, I was arguing with them the whole time, but it was whatever. So we got friendly enough with them to go, they take. They took us to this, it was basically what I can only describe as a compound. And they were building these yeah. incredible, um, like traditional environmental um, barracks for kids. So they could do the training of the, the basically turning kids yeah. into militants. They could do it all year round. Now, I tell you now, the amount of money that would have gone into that place will be astronomical. Like, all of the best, everything was being used. They had a lot of money coming from somewhere. So basically, it was very clearly a 
a well-funded operation, at least from what you were saying. There was no way that that was, oh, we've got a bit of money coming in from the government and our shitty T-shirts. It was something else. Like, it, it was. there's no way it was coming from, like, m- membership donations or random donations, yeah. No, no, man. I mean, you, you're talking hundreds of thousands. I mean, even the wood that they were buying, like, thick, solid bits of oak to build up the frames of these incredible buildings, you know, it was really... I guess it would have cost a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, and with yeah, th- this is something like I was saying. It's hard to understand or try to. It, it's hard to try and get, a, you know, a decent answer as to where their money comes from or has come from. Because one, they deny everything, and two, it's Ukraine, and it's hard, if not impossible, to prove quote or you know prove at all that such and such person has been funded by such and such other person. But uh, I think it's pretty clear when you look at like things like what you're describing in 2017, what you saw and realizing like, okay, this is not some ragtag operation. When you look at, for example, what they, they call it the first nationalist hub in Kharkiv. And there's a, and you know, I mean, listeners can go look for pictures of this. I like this sort of a, well, as the name says, a nationalist hub in Ukraine's second largest city. And you look at pictures of the facility they got there. I mean, it's a pretty well-put-together gym and MMA facility, a little room for events and things like that. Uh, then, then you look at uh, what what their base looks like at uh, Atek out, uh, on the outskirts of Kiev. Uh, I mean, it it is an abandoned factory. So you look at you know visuals from the outside. It looks like okay, it it, it kind of feeds this myth. It's like oh, this ragtag bunch of guys. They're just in some abandoned factory. But then, like you go look at, for example, the gym that they have there. It it's a pretty. I mean, even all these little things like this adding up, where you got this pretty well put together gym, where you've got. And not, where you've got a, a book club that, you know, I mean, whether people actually read all their books or not, um, you, you've got a book club that take, makes that takes its time to have pretty pretty well designed books and translated far right books from other languages into Ukrainian. You have the ability to mobilize several hundred kids for a rally like I've seen in the Kiev, where it seems to be mobilized within like a few hours, where you all of a sudden after COVID hit in, you know, March and April of last year, where all of a sudden there's these National Corps volunteers and branded vans driving around. Like this is not a movement that has, you know, endless pockets of money. I don't want to stress that. But this is not some, you know, ragtag, bunch of dudes running around collecting money where they can. There are clearly different revenue streams coming in from different places at different times, sometimes more than other times. So sometimes it seems like you see a bit of a surge in what they're doing or their activities, and then other times that activity seems to seems to fade off. So, I mean, it would be hard for a far-right movement somewhere else to replicate their level of success without some significant funding coming in from somewhere. And I mean, former members of the National Corps Party have said this stuff publicly. There was a, back in May of last year, there was a, a pretty significant open conflict between um, 
the former, one of the former senior members of the senior leaders of the National Corps Party, and and Bilecki and some of the other current leaders of, of the party and of the movement. Yeah, there was an open gun battle, right? There, yeah, there. Were, I mean, there almost was something like that. And there was well, uh, th- this was more. This was a when um, I, I'm not going to bother naming the individuals now, partly because I mispronounced their names right now. Um, is uh, they were invited to a meeting to discuss some issues, and apparently Bilecki and others, you know gave them a few punches and roughed them up uh, because these are former members, uh, including the former Kiev head of National Corps, who have kind of gone and tried to do their own thing, especially with their own like private security company. So I think they were coming into conflict with, with Azov. And around that time, the former one of the, one of the former senior leaders of the party, he published a Facebook post and then it also came out quoted in, in an article. Uh, I think his exact words were something like, this is, an, this is an organized crime group, not a political party. And he flat out alleged that uh, they were getting the party, just National Corps, as well as political party itself, not talking about anything else linked to the movement, uh, alleging that there was money coming in, that he had no idea where it was coming from, and it seemed suspicious. Now, that hasn't gone anywhere. Those guys, um, like I was saying before about Boletsky, um, it's pro- <laughs> it's generally good not to get into an open conflict with him. So I think they they backed off and minded their own business. But all that, all those statements are out there. I mean, if if you're a mem- I mean, if you're a former senior official in a political party, a far right political party, or any party. And you come out publicly and say that that party is more an organized crime group than a political party. That does say something. Yeah, and Belitsky is a dangerous guy. Like you know, he's taking a risk to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, choosing choosing my words carefully here, but uh, people who have crossed Belitsky in the past are not alive. Yeah, and he's been arrested for like very you know very serious. Uh, offenses where the people still are alive, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it, yeah, his his reputation unfortunately precedes itself. <laughs> yeah, um, you've mentioned the National Corps there. Um, maybe let's kind of open up and explain what they are, because, like you said, there's the political side, but there's also the kind of street militia, also called the National Corps. I think they've got a new name now. Um, just yeah. tell us about all that. Yeah, so the National Corps political party. They they as the Azov movement officially started up this political party National Corps in uh, October 2016, and it's essentially it's it's a political party that does run in elections and and doesn't do well in elections. It must be stressed at any at any level, um, but I think it's the it's really kind of the main hub around which the political activities of, of, of the uh, of the entire movement are based and what the, another an, another offshoot of the movement that they have or did have was what was called the national militia uh, this uh, was sort of like a formed almost as like a street fighting paramilitary group and it 
garnered a lot of uh, controversy, including in Western press when it first came out, because it was it was discussed and framed as almost a, a vigilante force, as like a, a, a street thug force. And what became of that was that you'd see for different marches or, or rallies in Kiev, you'd see these national militia guys, got teenagers, I mean, these kids, I mean, people are barely in high school, some of them it looked like, uh, tasked to march and, and, and chant and, and take part in actions, shall we say. Yeah, they were like smashing up Romanian people. They were smashing up... Uh... Like encampments. Yeah, there's a, there. Yeah, one of the. One, this is a, a sad thing to have to say. One of the pogroms of a Roma camp, at least, in 2018, was done by national militia people related to the Azov movement. Of course, they say that they didn't do any of this. I'm not going to get into their bullshit justifications. Well, in stuff. the footage, they're literally wearing the the Azov national core T-shirts. I've seen it. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, and and the national militia jackets that are these kind of blue camouflage jackets. But what's happened over the past year, over 2020, is that this national militia has just disappeared. In July, I think his last Telegram post was in July. It seemed, yeah, it seemed like it was just fading off in interest. So national militia, I don't see anything of anymore. What emerged largely in its place, including with the same leadership, is this Centuria organization. And if you, if if you or if listeners go and look at some of the video and and, and everything else from this Centuria organization. It seems like what Centuria is is this sort of rebranded or revitalized national militia, but much more overt in its kind of faux Roman Empire imagery, but also it's pretty close to Nazi imagery in terms of a you know things that look like the the old Nazi cathedral of light or these kind of bizarre ritualistic. It's it's become like the sort of bizarre ritualistic organization. In individuals, men, young men, mostly are, if not exclusively, are kind of inducted into this organization as like legionnaires. I think they call them. They have these more uh, more dangerous looking black t-shirts and masks. They do well, rubber knife fights and knife training and different sorts of training and things like that. It's, so it's, it, it seems like this national militia that we've talked about for a few years has gone by the wayside and in some ways has been rela- replaced by this Centuria sub-organization that frankly looks like it's more radical than its predecessor. Yeah. Um, do you remember when, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but Azov had a thing called Reconquista? Uh, I certainly do, yes. <laughs> yeah, maybe explain what that is for us because it reminds me of Reconquista. Reconquista, it's it's hard to describe what it is because it's almost sort of, it's not like it was, it's some sort of sub organization or anything like that, but it's, it's some, it's a sort of branding that they've used to talk about their, their international efforts, framing their networking with other far right groups as part of the Reconquista of, of Europe from all, all manner of enemies and there used to be a Reconquista club in Kiev. 
I know because I've been there. I was, wrote an article for the New Republic about it, where they used to have Friday night MMA fights. And that was one of the strangest experiences of my life, being able to walk into a known far-right establishment just off the street, uh, pay, pay a cover to eat burgers and drink beer, and watch kids, recruits, budding, budding far-right kids beat the snot out of each other in, an, in a proper octagon MMA ring. So that, that club is shut down. But that name and that term Reconquista you still see floating, floating around as of propaganda. I remember there was a, a woman that ran it. Uh, Alina? Um, yes. Uh, she is the International Secretary of National Corps. Um, and it's funny you mention her because as we're recording this a few days ago, um, at least as we're recording this right now, uh, she both... she she. <laughs> She, uh, because she is a PhD student in philosophy, she somehow became a fellow at a, an, a junior research fellow at an institution in Vienna, Austria. And after less than 24 hours of outcry from people like me and frankly almost everybody under the sun, uh, her fellowship was taken away. Now, I interviewed her just over two years ago I've referred to her a lot in my articles, and um, just to put it politely, she is not my biggest fan right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with that in mind, what what is the Ukrainian government's current stance? I remember for a while they would just pretend that there was no, they were not, they're just nationalists, they're not Nazis, despite there being a huge abundance of evidence that they're at least all fascists, and within that element there's a lot of Nazis as well. Um, and I know that Azov is still part of the Ukraine government, basically. I mean, what is what is their response to this? I, I think the the attitude now, especially under new President Zelensky, is it, it, it's still an attitude that you see prevalent throughout a lot of Ukrainian civil society. Is it, it's just not talked about or discussed. There, there's still, still is really this strong tendency, this belief that if we talk about the far-right problem in this country, we feed into Russian propaganda about the far-right. And just for a quick background for, for listeners who might not be aware, one of the main propaganda talking points against Ukraine in the early stages of the war and during the height of the war in 2014-15, and especially well, around the time of Maidan in 2013-14, was the role of the far right in the protests and the, the role of the far right in like with, with Azov, with, with right sector in the war. And some of that Russian propaganda fed from longstanding troubles about Ukrainian nationalists who did fight alongside the Nazis in World War II. It was always a Soviet uh, anti-Ukrainian talking point, painting all Ukrainians as like jackbooted fascist sort of nonsense. So that propaganda angle really, really came strong in 2014. And I think what's happened is a lot of Ukrainians in civil society and in the mainstream have really internalized that and, and, and think that 
any discussion of the far right in Ukraine feeds into that very same Kremlin propaganda. That's why when I and, and others from, from the West write about the far right in Ukraine, there, there's a reason why we get and I get just attacked by, not necessarily by the far right, but by the mainstream for, for talking about it, for the, the things I get accused of, of making too big a deal of it, focusing, what, why don't you focus on other countries? Uh, you're feeding into Russian propaganda. Are you on their side? Um, this party, like the National Corps only gets 2% of the vote. Why are you talking about them? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're really, what I worry about is this increasing gulf between that sort of civil society. And again, not, I don't want to paint it all with a broad brush as if everybody in Ukraine thinks this way, but there's a significant number of influential people that do. There is this increasing gulf between that point of view in Ukraine and the point of view of almost everybody else outside of Ukraine, who by 2021, we can all see that there is a considerable problem with the far right in Ukraine and that the far right in Ukraine is in some ways, I argue, or in many ways, it's one of the worst in the problems in the world, if not the worst in Europe. And me saying that like right now and, and other, other journalists saying similar things like that or writing, writing and broadcasting things that quote unquote make Ukraine look bad it, it just further because we we can all see what what's what's going on we 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 work in the country we work there we travel there we've interviewed people we haven't just parachuted in and had a had a little look around and then and then jetted off we know like you can't pull the wool over our eyes and pretend that there isn't a significant issue but the problem is is that there's still influential elements in civil society that insist on trying to wool, pull the wool over people's eyes. But it's 2021, guys. This doesn't work anymore. Yeah, well, I've had this. I've had exactly the same thing. You know, when I made my documentary, people said, why are you even focusing on it? I said, well, look, I, I you know, I'm pretty openly Ukrainian um, sovereignty. I was against Russia invading and I covered the war mostly from the Ukrainian side because I got banned from the other side. But anyway, but yeah. people said, oh, what, what, why are you doing that? I said, well, look, Okay, this idea that Ukraine was a Nazi junta that, you know, pro-Russian people say, I say, I know that's bullshit. You can see that because, like you said, the National Corps got less than 2% of the vote. Yeah, and, and to stress, like, they, got, they, had to, they had to get in a coalition with right sector and Svoboda, who are, like, the, like a, I guess, a radical right party. Like, in a coalition, the three of them together got 2.3% of the vote. That's all they could get. Right, and then the, and then the country overwhelmingly voted in a Jewish guy. <laughs> so it's like the idea that they were all Nazis is bullshit. However, as of, have a fucking column of tanks. <laughs> like, there's not many far-right organizations in the world that can say they legally have a column of tanks. There are not many far-right organizations that are able to act as openly as Azov can in Ukraine. Like, I cannot imagine... I, like another European capital, European Union or not, anywhere in Europe. I cannot imagine another European capital where literally about a, how, how far away is it up the street? A hundred meters up a street from literally the main square in the capital of the country is a three-story far-right social center that everyone knows is there. Like you don't, 
you don't see that sort of thing in in Sofia in Bulgaria, which has a far right problem as well. You don't see it in Belgrade in Serbia, also has a far right problem there. Uh, you don't see it in countries you, you mean east or west, but the fact that I mean, and, and I mentioned that specific example because uh, I've seen their Cossack House referred to in exactly those terms by people in Azov. There is no other center, social center like this in Europe, right in the middle of a European capital. They say it themselves. So, I mean, on the one hand, those those sorts of criticisms are warrant criticisms that we get for writing about the far right in Ukraine in a particular way. Those criticisms are, I mean, they're helpful in terms of putting it into perspective, again, realizing, oh, these guys only get 2% of the vote. Oh, this country has, has, has a Jewish president and, and everyone knows it. Uh, like, you, you can see on social media and other places, not everybody in the country is some fawning fan of Azov or the far right. Like, I mean, I've seen some pretty, pretty nasty things from Ukrainians said about, about Azov, about people on the far right. Not everybody is fans of these guys, but that doesn't, take away from the severity of the problem exactly and I, you know other people say to me like oh god like why don't you shut up it's like no we are meant to be like you know you have to really be hammering this shit man you can't just let it go yeah like and part of the reason why i started writing so much about azov in late 2018 and then into early 2019 so like about two years ago this time was because i the impression that I had of what the far right was like in Ukraine was vastly different from what I encountered when I looked into it in more detail. And I was, I mean, almost embarrassed that I wasn't aware of, of what I, what I, what I began to see. And I still have that, men I still have that mentality today where people try to, with, various things that I write or, or things that I tweet or anything like that, where people try to, you know, peddle the same old myths to me saying, or say that, you know, like, again, they're, they're all, oh, they only get 2% of the vote myth or saying, oh, you should look at other European countries, far right problems. And I think that's especially ironic because aside from writing a book about the Azov movement, I do write about other far right movements more now than I do in Ukraine. So I think what has to happen is for some elements in Ukrainian, Ukrainian civil society and in the mainstream to really sit down and realize that it's, it's okay to acknowledge that the far right is a problem. I mean, good Lord, look at the world around us right now. Every friggin' country has a far right problem right now. I'm from Canada and in Canada right now, like, where a country where people erroneously assume is some idyllic paradise sometimes, we have a far-right problem. We definitely do. So the idea that the far-right is a problem everywhere but Ukraine is just not a tenable position to have anymore. And frankly, I think the best way to hit back at you know pro-Russian or Kremlin propaganda or whatever we want to call that sort of thing, the easiest way... And or to me, the best way to hit back at that is to stand up and say, yeah, we, yeah, there's, there's a far right issue here. Fine. Look at what we're doing to address it. But nobody wants to do that right now. 
Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Well, another people that don't want to do it is America. Now, I looked into this in oh, well, a long time ago, man. I think 20, 2016, I looked at the connections of American funding to Ukraine, and there was almost definitely some of that money was indirectly, but it was going there. It was going to Azov even yes. back then. Yes. As far as I know, there's been no correction, and America's just not interested in talking about it, even though I think the, yes. the FBI or the CIA has, has, I think if you can do, there's some documents that say they recognize that Azov is a, a fascist militant group. Well, they're not, the State Department in a report, I mean, I, yeah. I use yeah. this quote all the time, uh, and I think the report might have been in 2019, where the State Department referred to National Corps as a quote-unquote nationalist hate group. Right, and then they're giving money to the U to the Ukrainians who are giving money to Azov. And what have they have they ever said anything about it? Not really, other than other than that they won't directly fund Azov or anything like that. Right, but they'll pay for repairs on the tanks that Azov are given. So. You know, it's uh, it's yeah. perhaps indirectly, but it's still, it's very, very dodgy ground. And of course, the EU and the UN and everyone is just like, don't mention Azov. It's it's just, it is, you know, it's not right. There is yeah, this, still, this tendency that it's better or more geopolitically important or, or whatever to not talk about the far right in Ukraine. Like, maybe that argument almost held some water in like 2016 or 2017 but when once we got into 2018 and 2019 that i mean it, it became very very clear that that argument was just completely untenable because it was very clear to anybody ukrainian or not who wanted to look into the issue with any seriousness that there was a serious problem and that it was a serious international problem with international connections. And that's another reason why I'm motivated to write about it is because, as, as you all know, and as any, any listener knows who follows, who follows the far right, it's transnational and it's international. Now, some of that has been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. So like, there's not hordes of far right people going and hanging out in Ukraine anymore, or vice versa. But Ukraine is still this this place where international far right people feel that something special is going on. I mean, a lot of that is myth, but they feel that, and you have to ask why. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the connections they have to other far right groups because certainly, as of popped up a lot when I was looking into the Atomwaffen division and you know, a funny story actually. Fucking Atomwaffen were like saying, "Oh, you know, we, we should try and get." Hanrahan killed by Azov when he goes and reports in Ukraine next. And I, you know, I'm, I, even though I disagree and, you know, we have arguments, I speak to enough Azov people to say like, hey, check this out. And they were like, who the fuck are these freaks? <laughs> you know what I mean? But they certainly yeah. do have connections to other groups. And actually they yeah. did end up having connections on some level with, you know, a lot of US neo-Nazi groups. Um, yeah, I mean, you've done research on that as well, right? Yeah, and a lot of that has really, it was, on the one hand, in 2020, really slowed down by the pandemic, but it was also slowed down by actual you know, reporting from myself and others about these international connections. So if you look more into 2018 and 2019, uh, Azov had, was, had connections, it was trying to form connections with, uh, for example, uh, far-right groups in Germany. Uh, the, I'm not going to pronounce it in German because I don't want to butcher German right now. Uh, the third way, a far-right group or neo-Nazi group there. Um, you know, very like very fringe, 
far-right group yeah, neo-Nazis. And they had connections um, with uh, uh, Polish far-right, their connections with uh, uh, far-right in the Baltic countries, especially Estonia. Uh, two years ago, around this time, there were Azov members, uh, or, or at least the Azov International Secretary, visiting Casa Pound in Rome and Italy, which is a huge inspiration. That that, that far right movement's a considerable inspiration in some ways to Azov. Uh, Azov, and the, one of the main things I wrote in 2019 was exploring Azov's relationships with the Croatian far right, and th those are just a few countries that you know had some examples of, and also. In terms of American connections, they have had connections with uh, a white nationalist, quote-unquote, intellectual Greg Johnson. He visited uh, Kiev uh, multiple times and still speaks highly of Kiev and Ukraine as some sort of opportunity for the far right. And like you said, there's it's it's hard to necessarily say they're connections, but there are these yeah, like these American Adam Waffen guys and other other Americans who really. They really think that they can just jet off, show up in Ukraine, join a far-right militia, and be at the front, and it doesn't quite work like that. But what 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 happened in 2019 was once myself and others reported pretty extensively on these international connections, they seemed to close off very quickly. Either they were just stopped making some of these connections at all, or they just did it more, um, a little bit more clandestine. And the, I, I really feel that what Azov is doing strategically, as opposed to what I saw in 2019, where it really seemed like they were trying to form as many connections in as many countries as possible, like including like Sweden and Norway. Um, there were, they used to have connections with, uh, the Bastion Social in France, which is a far-right group that got banned by Macron because it was so violent and anti-Semitic. So, <clears throat> but what I see, like last month, Azov had its uh, intermarium conference, and I am, don't really need or want to get into the background of what intermarium is, other than that it's it's some it's a concept that's been around. For a hundred years, but it's been recently, well, in the past few years, picked up again by the Azov movement as some sort of plan for a kind of a, a coalition of Eastern European countries to both be anti-EU but also anti-Russia. And when you look at these intermarium conferences in the past, the the the, the most recent before this year, they had representatives from like several, a number of Eastern European countries. But what you saw last month with this online, like eight hour Zoom conference or something like that, uh, unlike in past years, you didn't have all these representatives from like almost, you didn't have all these representatives from a bunch of different Eastern European countries. Uh, from what I could tell, you had people only from three. You had somebody from Estonia, you had some people from Poland, not all of whom were actually far right, and you had supporters from Croatia. So it really seems to me that what Azov is trying to do with its international connections is one, it's cutting its losses from bad press in 2019 and, and into 2020, and it's focusing 
on just a few countries where it has these relationships. But secondly, I really think it's become a, a lowered priority for them. I think partly with the pandemic and partly with the, the international heat that really got put onto Azov, especially in 2019, they are just backing off from some of this obvious international stuff right now and focusing a lot more on just within Ukraine. Right. And in terms of the front line, I know they're still out there. They're not doing a lot. Um, but, you know, what are their official kind of movements right now on the front? I don't know the details of what they're doing on the front. And I think that's a testament to what the situation of the war is like. I mean, there this right. quote-unquote ceasefire was agreement was reached in July 2020 or started from late July and it really has yeah it has had an impact in drastically reducing fighting and casualties of soldiers and civilians along the front line so but it's it's certainly not a proper ceasefire because uh well they're still firing and there's still casualties but the 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 war i mean it's it's always been hot and cold relatively hot and cold for a few years but it really has cooled off recently and to be honest i from and it's maybe it's partly a bias in my own work and the things that i look at i don't pay a ton of attention to what the actual azov regiment is doing out in the east i pay more attention to what they're doing across the country as as a broader part of the movement i'm more focused on that because i feel in their longer term that is that is the actual threat. Yeah, no, I think I think they're definitely playing the long game. They're, yeah, they're they're playing the long game almost in by their own words. They're absolutely playing the long game. To to borrow a an academic phrase about how the far right works, uh, what they're doing right now is uh, they're on a long march through the institutions. And they they've been doing that. Yeah. What do you think the future holds for them? Oh, that's I've been. This is something I've been wondering about and ruminating and, and, and asking people about. Um, well, one, this movement is not going away. Uh, with the Interior Minister Arsene Avakov still in power and being one of the most powerful politicians, if not the most powerful politician in Ukraine, uh, he's effectively and uh, allegedly, I'll just choose my words carefully, he's allegedly the patron of the Azov movement and protects them. So in, if if their alleged patron is not about to go anywhere, they're fine. They're fine in that regard. I think what the there what I what I think is there is some discussion within the movement in terms of the direction to go now, because the war Yes, it's still going on, but it's, but it's relatively cooled off. It's not as huge. Uh, it's 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 not as significant in motivating new recruits into their movement. And I think, like a lot of far right groups at this kind of point in their their life cycle, they're trying to decide whether to, to borrow another academic phrase. Uh, the choice is between radicalization or entropy. The choice, and the choice is between becoming more radical to keep youth interested, becoming more radicalized because they see an opportunity to finally shed some of the facade and just be 
more overt and some of the neo-Nazism from some elements, not all, but some elements within the movement? Or is this just going to kind of, are elements of this movement just going to kind of fade into more of a populist radical right party that we see more in, in Western Europe? Something that's not, at least not openly anti-democratic like it is now, but but shifting slightly in a more mainstream direction. I think they're not clear themselves and with personalities in the movement. I don't I don't think there's clarity on that right now in which direction they want to go. And I mean of course someday they they won't have alleged protection from from a powerful politician. And someday the elements of the movement might break off a little bit. Uh, but uh, what I what I said when you know, about two years ago, realizing and understanding a bit more about what the movement was doing and how it was benefiting from that alleged protection. My theory was always that it's a movement that's trying to solidify itself in Ukraine in the state so that when they lose that alleged protection from Arsenovakov, they can still grow and survive it, essentially getting themselves to a point where getting rid of them is going to be an incredibly hard thing to do. So I think their goal right now is to largely keep doing what they're doing, keep keep marching through institutions, keep legitimizing themselves here and there as legitimate actors within elements of the state or civil society, uh, keep uh, tr- trying to avoid bad press in the West, which is why you see them, you know, react so vociferously sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes to articles or or things that are that are written about them. They're very sensitive about being linked in any way to far-right extremist terrorism, even linked in terms of sharing the ideologies of far-right terrorists, let alone any allegations which are unproven and of actual training of people who became far-right terrorists. Anything associated with that word terrorism is something they react pretty vociferously to, and it's something that they are going to continue to try to disassociate themselves from. So in other words, if these, I mean, if some of these American guys who think that they can just show up in Ukraine and join a far-right militia and seem like potential budding terrorists, as of is really, in my opinion, not going to be stupid enough to have anything to do with these kind of guys. So a long-winded way of saying, I think we're going to see more of the same marching through institutions, this playing the ve- the long game, the very long game, but also trying to decide what direction to take the movement or elements within the movement. Do we become more hardcore or do we soften up a little bit and try to become a little bit more mainstream? And I think some of those tensions might come to a head in the, in the near future. Yeah. Um, it's funny, something that I noticed, you're just saying that they try and avoid like, you know, being involved with terrorism or whatever. Uh, I found a group like through my, you know, filming with them and I, I ended up, you know, finding some of them on social medias and that I found out that there was there were like telegram groups that are basically they're like a front network. So it's it is Azov and they're all the people in the groups are Azov, but the group they're in is not called Azov or it's you know what I mean? And on them groups, I've you know, I've seen some of them and they're sharing the fucking New Zealand shooters manifesto and like they're openly like love the terrorism. But they, there's enough 
there's enough of an arm just pushing away to be like, oh, it's not us, that's someone else, you know? I think that's a deliberate strategy on their part. And that's another thing I long notice is that these, some of these groups or subgroups that clearly have some relationship with the movement or under the umbrella of the movement are more extreme, but they're also groups that if, if they get in trouble, Azov can claim, well, no, they're not part. They're, like they're not part of the movement. Those are just individuals who, you know, we don't have anything to do with that. Yeah, very, very sneaky. They are sneaky, and I mean, like I've said to other people before, they're not they're they're not geniuses, but they're not stupid. They are very smart in a lot of the things that that they do, and sadly, they're that because they're very smart in some of the things that they do there's a lot of things that far-right movements around the world can learn from them if they're really looking into it and paying attention yeah yeah um one more thing i want to ask um misanthropic division what, what do you know about them what is the misanthropic division exactly i've never quite sussed it you know what i have a hard time sussing out exactly what it is either to the to point where i'm debating whether it actually exists as a thing anymore it just seemed to be sort of a a name for a broader network of of neo-nazis and sympathizers and whatnot for getting getting people in into ukraine during during earlier stages in the war now i mean i never see that not never i seldom see that name mentioned as some sort of entity anymore i think it's something we really shouldn't be focusing on too much i think that's a bit in the past but yeah, it's like a lot of things related to Azov. It's hard to parse, like when you see a name of something, you're like, okay, what the hell is this exactly? Is this a group of people? Is this just a branding? Is is this even real? Like, what the hell is this? And that's that's deliberate on their part, and it's smart. Yeah, so I, for me, when I was looking at it, I first noticed misanthropic division before I noticed Azov. At the very start of the war, they were the kind of, the the one that they were like oh there's a far right militia now and it was like it's misanthropic division it wasn't like oh it's azov it was them and like you said they seem to be the ones getting international recruits into azov right and i think well obviously the situation has changed and again for 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 background of listeners that might not be aware uh, despite all the talk about uh, foreign fighters in ukraine uh, the situation for for years now in ukraine has been such that uh, if you are a far-right person in Canada, the US, UK, wherever, you can't just show up in Kiev, go talk to some Azov dude or somebody else, get a few days of training, all, all of a sudden have a gun and be at the front training for a future race war. It doesn't work like that. And Azov, even several years ago, was saying to people, like, don't try to join us. It doesn't work like this. Yeah, it did for a while though. <laughs> like, you know, there were like some out and often with them and stuff. Oh, it did for a while though. And I mean, yeah, th but this idea that Azov is some sort of like far right ISIS as some sort of training ground for far right super soldiers, it's not quite that. No, but I do think something you do see is that internationally azov has been like a real like a guiding light for a lot of these yes. fascist organizations yes that that's a good way to put it yeah it's it's a guiding light it's something whether it's based in reality or in myth it's something 
that other far-right people look up to. They look up to Azov, they look up to Ukraine, and they're like, oh shit, I wish we could have, let's, I wish we could have something like that. And part of, part of their wishes, again, like, are based in some of Azov's own myth-making about what they do in Ukraine. But the fact that, like, the, the fact, for example, that the, uh, the Christchurch terrorists had talked about going to settle in Ukraine. This is even in like, I think it was, this is like 2015 and he was talking about it. It was in a report that came out last month or whenever. I mean, the fact that somebody like that saw Ukraine as a place for him to settle, one, yes, it says something negative about contemporary Ukraine, but two, it says something also about the contemporary international far right that they have built up this mythology of Ukraine as this paradise for the far right. Like, yes, it's a place where if you're on the far right, you can act a lot more openly than you can probably in almost any other country. But is, is it some sort of paradise where, where Azov governs and, you know, the far right is literally in power? Well, no, guys, settle down. Yeah, that, that's the other problem. You get all these fucking idiots. It's often like pro-Putin, like American teenagers. And they're like, Ukraine's a Nazi junta. And it's like, no, mate. The first time I was on the front line in, the, in, in Ukraine, the, the commander of the unit was in, like, he was, I think his family were born in Afghanistan. Like, clearly he wasn't white. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, and that, that was not, that was actually not like an outlier. There was quite a lot of people like that out there on the front, you know? It's, that's the thing, like, with this, this, this bullshit propaganda about all Ukrainians being Nazis, it's easy to push back against that. But conflating that bullshit propaganda with actual reasonable, rightful criticism about the role of the far right in the country, that's a mistake. Before I forget, um, where can people find your work? Where can they follow you online and all of that? Uh, my Twitter is at Colburn Michael. My last name, which is misspelled a lot, is C-O-L-B-O-R-N-E. Um, look at my Twitter. If I, if I write or publish something, it's always going to be there in my address to other articles on muckrack and things like that is there and other other crap that i do and uh yeah if somebody wants to read stuff that i've written go there hassle me there okay brilliant thank you very much mate that was michael colborne speaking about the far-right Azov battalion and their influence that is increasingly spreading across ukraine if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us as always on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash popular front. You get bonus episodes, narrated articles, access to the community discord, documentaries go up there first. There's all sorts there. You will see a lot. Patreon.com slash popular front. If you don't like Patreon, try us at popularfront.co slash support. The more money we get, the more stuff we make for Popular Front. Thank you very much to our sponsors this episode. They are Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue 97239. Um, obviously, you'll have to wait, I guess, until COVID is lifted. I don't know what it's like over there, but yeah, check out Oracle Coffee Shop. Um, also sponsoring this episode is Grindcore House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South, one in West. Check them out on social media at Grindcore House. I've been speaking to them uh, recently. We might be making our own popular front coffee blend through Grindcore and we'll be selling that on the site. 
at uh, popularfront.shop. But yeah, check them out, Grindcore House. Uh, we're also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda. Get your prints at propagandopolis.com. That is P-R-O-P-A-G-A-D-O-P-O-L-I-S.com. Use the promotion code POPULARFRONT10 to get 10% off your prints. Recently, we did two runs of the uh, extremely peaceful J Stark print from the popular front uh, documentary plastic defense if you've watched that thank you very much it's hit over a million views on youtube in a month we have no commercial backing um we've spent no money on advertising or anything like that so it's all been organic really good to see thank you very much to everybody that shared that uh, and has supported us if you want to watch our other documentaries or you want to watch plastic defense if you've not seen it yet go to youtube.com slash popular front or just search popular front uh, in the search bar on youtube i think we have enough sway and enough subscribers there now that we should be like the first people coming up when you search it i think that's right but anyway like i said if you can't find it youtube.com slash popular front um you can follow us on instagram instagram.com slash popular dot front uh shout out to Caden, he's running that for me now thank you very much mate i fucking hate that app but yeah it's going it's going good uh follow us on there on twitter it's uh at popular front co same as the website www.popularfront.co uh if you want to get in touch with me or see what i'm doing uh all social medias are at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n music in this episode the intro was by home and the outro was by sam black also known as son of old listen to sam's music at samblackpf.com thank you very much to the high tier patreons without you lot none of this would be possible thank you very much to mj k glitter vulcan meredith waters bethany swoveland C. O'Donnell, Adam H, Ryan Barbadillo, Damian Boyd, Larson8669, Bad Nads, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Jacob, Michael O'Connor, Taylor Kidd, Zach Picard, Todd Cravens, Will Anderson, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Colley, Michael Akakan, Ethan, Fitzmadrid, Joe Watt, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, The French Report, hang on, wait, what? The French Report from Media, I don't even, I can't read it, man, it's too long. I don't know, The French Report from Media Par something. Uh, it's just too long, man, you might have to shorten your name on that. Um, Mike Barone, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, George Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Charlie, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Noise, Noise, I think, mate. Sorry, he did tell me how to say that, but it didn't make much sense. I think it's Noise. Uh, Christina Rivetti. Brian Northman, <clears throat> Ali Hunter, 
Moody Al Rashid, uh, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Sarushay Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, Sebastian from the Discord, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kobarak, Dan Donham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Govanek, Q-Ball, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, Moritz Zumwal, and Kay Hardy Roberts. Thank you all very much. Again, if you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash popular front. Cheers. Thank you.